This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, all things are passing away, but Jesus is not passing away. He is the living and the risen one, and he is glorious. Help us, Lord, we would see Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So we've come again to the great 40 days of Lent, the weeks that we take every year in preparation for Easter, weeks of self-examination, fasting, silence, prayer, and meditation, that we might enter with fear and trembling and great joy into the Paschal mystery, the death and resurrection of Jesus. The great Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann once wrote that Lent is a school of repentance. It tutors us on how to make a new beginning on turning away from the sin to which we have been addicted, to which we have been enslaved, and to turn again to Christ as our Lord and our first and highest love. To repent really means to change your loyalty. It's as if you were in a war and you suddenly realized that you were fighting for the wrong side. You change your loyalties. We have believed lies about God and about ourselves, and we have fought for the wrong side. We have resisted the advance of God's kingdom in our own hearts and in the world around us, both by commission and by omission, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And therefore, this season of Lent is a time of penitence and a time of fasting. The New Testament scholar Scott McKnight says that when we think of fasting, we usually think about it in instrumental terms, as if we were fasting in order to compel God to do something, as if we were capable of doing that, right? But the dominant view in Scripture is not this. The dominant view is that fasting is responsive. Fasting is a response to a grievous, sacred moment in the life of God's people. When calamity strikes, the people of God fast. Here's what Scott McKnight says. Those who are the most moved by sacred moments find themselves fasting. And because they are in tune with what God is doing in this world, in those grievous, sacred moments, they may discover desired results. Do you hear what he says there? We can't compel God to do anything by our fasting, by anything that, we're, that we can do. God's purposes are sure and fixed. They're fixed by his covenant love, his hesed. And yet, when we put ourselves in the posture of fasting and of paying attention and of being connected to the purposes of God, we discover that God is doing amazing things around us. But we don't fast in order to get the results. We fast in response to sacred moments. So when we look at the passage in Joel today, we can get the impression that actually what Joel is saying is that we're going to compel God to relent, to relent from calamity by fasting. But that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that the day of the Lord is coming. The judgment of God falls upon sin. 
The judgment of God sweeps everything away so that there is a place for his kingdom to come afresh. And he says, in response to this, call a holy fast and a sacred assembly. The day of God's judgment is coming, he says, and the right response to that is to fast. We do not fast in order to make God relent, to placate, as it were, an abusive father who's about to fly off the handle. That's not God's character. God is wrathful against sin. God is angry against sin, but he is not unmeasured in this anger. And he is not quick to bring his judgment against sin. What does Joel say? He says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. We heard the same thing in the portion of the psalm that we read today. And Joel makes it clear, furthermore, that no one actually knows what the results of fasting will be. And that if God relents from bringing the day of his judgment, that what will happen is not that calamity will cease, but that he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. What he's saying is that if you fast, you will be able to commune with God through calamity. You will remain close to him through calamity. He doesn't promise to rescue us from calamity. He doesn't promise to rescue us from the hard things of this life. That's not the promise. The promise is, I will be with you. Remain close to me that I may remain close to you. The goal of fasting is not to change God's mind, but to put us in a posture to discern what God is doing in the chaotic and painful and grievous circumstances of our lives and to commune with him through those circumstances. And this, I think, is also the point that Jesus is making in Matthew chapter 6. I mean, he presupposes there that the people of God will fast responsively whenever there are circumstances in which we look at God and ask, what on earth are you doing? This is so hard. Where are you, God? Jesus says, in those moments, you're going to fast. When you fast, that's what he says. He presupposes that the people of God are fasting. And you and I know that there are a great many of these ordeals that we are, we are walking together through in this church right now. I mean, this season of abundance in the life of ascension has been accompanied by tremendous heartache. The loss of beloved congregants and terrible sickness and suffering and mourning among many of us. And Jesus, just like Joel, is saying, hey, fasting is an appropriate response to that. Because fasting will put us in a frame where we can cooperate with what God is doing among us, even when we do not understand what that is. Fasting is how we go on when we do not know where we are. So what Jesus says is, when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. And the word hypocrite here is related to the Greek word for actor. And that's someone who plays a part, but whose character does not conform to the part played. I'm not dissing actors right now, please. If Mark Stevenson's anywhere in the room, please. I don't hear me saying that acting is a bad profession or something. But here's what I am saying. Acting before the Lord is no good thing. The Lord sees the heart. And so if we fast in such a way to show how righteous we are to others, instead of trying to fast so that we remain connected to and communing with God through difficult circumstances, we've already received our reward. The reward is 
the approval we get from others. And so he says, he pushes his disciples to not make it obvious when, when they are fasting so that it will be, only be seen by the Father who is unseen because the Lord sees the intention to commune with him. Jesus wants us to be attuned to what God is doing in the world during these sacred and grievous moments in the life of the people of God. Like Joel, he is saying, rend your hearts and not your garments. This is not about putting on a show before others, but about becoming aware, aware of and attuned to our need for God and allowing our need for God to kindle our desire to commune with him, that our longing for him would be deepened. And there are these grievous moments that punctuate our life as a church and fasting is absolutely an appropriate response. But there is no more sacred, grievous event in the life of the people of God than the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The ancient church called this our Pascha, our Passover. What the Passover was to the Israelites, that is what Jesus' death and resurrection is to us. If we leave here Let's go home and meditate on, on Exodus chapter 12, which is where the Passover is instituted. And we'll see there the, 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 the event that is related to what Jesus' death and resurrection is to us. What the Passover was to the Israelites, that's what Jesus' death and resurrection is to us. As the Israelites were delivered from death and slavery, so we are rescued from a deeper death and a deeper slavery. And because Lent prepares us to behold and to receive the magnitude of those world-altering events, if we are attuned to God's purposes, we will also fast. At its heart, Lent is a call to become hungry for God, hungry for that redemption that Jesus has wrought for us and for the resurrection he has promised us. As much as we long for food when we are hungry, we should long that much more for the coming of the kingdom in its fullness. Now, like maybe you can't fast from food for health reasons. I want to acknowledge that that's a reality for, for several of us in this room. Maybe you've never fasted before. You don't know how to do it. That's okay. Come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about how to fast. But if we're going to enter Lent in a holy way, we, we need to be fasting from something that gives us consolation, whether that's food or technology or entertainment or various kinds of experiences that we enjoy. Because the point of fasting, as St. Augustine said, is that we might deepen in our longing for God. Longing, he says, makes the heart grow deep. He says that our fasting has this aim, that we would perceive our exile in moaning and not love the world, but with pious mind, not constantly upon the door of him who has called us. We want to become hungry for God. Lent is not just a season of penitence and fasting, though. It's also a season marked by silence. You'll notice that here in this service on National Wednesday, especially on the, in the Good Friday service, silence is a huge part of our worship during this season. It's a quiet season. It's an attentive season. There's a famous Lenten hymn that begins this way. I know you know it. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. And with fear and trembling stand, ponder nothing earthly-minded, for with blessing in his hand, Christ our God to earth descendeth, our full homage to demand. Silence is critical. Because in silence, our minds cease to be fragmented and scattered. They cease to be driven ceaselessly by task and distraction. Silence 
is about attention and intention. Silence gathers us and collects us so that we can see who we really are with candor and sobriety. In the stillness of silence, God silently discloses us to ourselves. Silence is actually, therefore, kind of threatening because we're afraid of what we might discover if we take that stark look at ourselves. If we have high self-regard, we're afraid that what we, what, we might, what we might find is that we're not the projections that we make to the world. And if we have low self-regard, we're afraid that all the awful things that we say about ourselves might be proven true. But look, in either case, think about what this fear and this avoidance mean. It means we're unwilling to look at the truth. We're running from the truth. And I think the silence of Lent is especially necessary in the modern age because we've filled all of our silences with noise and distractions. There's a guy I like a lot named Matthew Crawford. He's a motorcycle mechanic. And he also happens to possess a PhD in philosophy from the University of Chicago. He's a unique kind of guy, right? But he analogizes the regime of media consumption that so characterizes our lives in the modern age to fast food. Instead of encountering reality itself, He says, we increasingly encounter the world through these virtual representations that are addressed to us, often with manipulative intent. Video games, pornography, gambling apps on your phone. There are many people working on these games and apps to make them addictive so that we stay plugged in. He says, these experiences are so exquisitely attuned to our appetites that they can swamp your ordinary way of being in the world. Just as food engineers have figured out how to make food hyperpalatable by manipulating fat and salt and sugar, similarly, the media have become expert at making mental stimuli irresistible. Instead of deep attention, we have surface attention. Instead of mental fitness, we have what Crawford calls obesity of the mind. The little silences of our lives, the transitional spaces that used to be there, you know, waiting for a bus or cooking dinner or waiting on a friend to arrive, they've been filled with streaming videos and nonstop music and podcasts. I'm not opposed to any of this stuff. I'm not slamming on the internet. I mean, it's provided incredible things to me. I'm telling you, every morning before my kids wake up, I get to study ancient Greek with Brandeis professors. I can't imagine I've been able to do that like 10 years ago, right? It's amazing. But I want to point out the always-on character of the internet to highlight a problem that it creates. If we have no silence and no interior life because we're gliding from surface to surface, immersed in noise, then we're not just decompressing or avoiding anxiety at that point. We're avoiding God. Our faith is becoming weaker and shallower and less rooted. Silence is in many ways synonymous with depth. And so Lent is an invitation to cultivate hunger for God, and it is an invitation to cultivate death. Excuse me, depth. (laughs) The very word Lent comes from the Middle English word for spring, actually referring to the lengthening of days. And by labeling this season of the Christian calendar Lent, the old Anglo-Saxons knew what they were about, because in this season we're invited to cooperate with God in the lengthening of our souls to mature us, to deepen us, to grow us up into the measure and stature of Jesus Christ. And I hope you'll hear Lent's invitation to give things up and to take things on as an invitation, not as an inconvenience, you know, not as as, uh, something, something that's put upon you, 
but is God beckoning you toward himself to meditate on him and to peer more deeply into his glory? So I also hope you hear that Lent is not simply a season of penitence and sobriety, but of what Shmemon calls a bright sadness. And we're called not simply to ponder our sin, which has broken the world and broken ourselves, but the fact that our sin has merited so great a redemption in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so that we might behold and be ravished by the magnificence of him. The God who created the universe flashed forth on this earth. He died so that the dominion of death might be broken. He rose to new life that we might receive his life, that we might breathe, we might be breathed on by his Holy Spirit, that we might be full of the power of God, that we might be his body in the world, that when, we, when he returns, that we might have a resurrection like his. That's what we're contemplating. That's what we're meditating on. In Lent, we are on a journey to Pascha, our Passover, our hope, our redemption. Lent is not just a season of sadness, it's a season of bright sadness. Because unless we have a reason to hope for a life in a future that is better than the one we can make for ourselves, we will not repent. We will not change our loyalties. The great Byzantine monk John Climacus had this tremendous insight. He understood this unbelievably well. Repentance is the daughter of hope and the refusal to despair. We won't repent if we, have, if we do not have hope in the right thing. And likewise, to have one's hope in the wrong thing is to be in despair. To be committed to the life in the future we can make for ourselves is to be in despair, no matter how happy and content we might feel at any given moment. Because the reign of death is universal. Our lives are vapors. Everything is transient and fragile because death reigns. It covers all the nations with all their beautiful dreams and visions of immortality with darkness. And guess what? It's coming for us too. All this beautiful stuff that we've made with our own hands, all the glittering distractions and all the arrogance of thinking that we are wiser than the civilizations of the past, all the arrogance of thinking that God does not see or that he serenely blesses all that we have done and are doing and that we won't be held to account just like every civilization has been for our betrayals, for our greed, for our corruption, for our cowardice, for our selfishness. Hey, death comes for us all. Everything is passing away and will one day be consigned to the dung heap of history. The day of the Lord, that is, the day of the Lord's judgment upon sin is coming. And it is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. That's the message of Joel for us today. It's a sobering message. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We're all going to be marked with the ashes as a sign of the truth of that reality. This is a grievous and terrible reality that is unavoidable. So we fast. And we we maintain our silence. But we do not fast without hope. We fast in order that we might be attuned not just to the reality of death and sin, but of the one who overcame death and sin. The one who took the sting of death away from us by opening the gates of eternal life to us. Only one has escaped the grasp of death. Only one has risen from death, never to die again. And that one lives and forever lives to intercede for us, his people. 
And only if we have hope in his resurrection from the dead can we also hope for a resurrection like his. Only if we see his goodness will we long to be transformed ourselves from glory to glory. Today is the day of salvation. When we fast, let it not be as hypocrites, but as those who long to see Jesus, those who know we are in exile and who long to be at home. And let us put away those distractions and in the silence that discloses us to ourselves, let us feel our exile here and long for the heavenly country, which is our true home. Let us fast as those who know they have been bought with a price and that we are of infinite worth to the one who promises to bring us home. Amen.